Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Rounding the Earth. Rounding the Earth is a popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and everything in between. And of course, more recently, the COVID-19 pandemic and some of the psychological topics that have come out of it. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, YouTube, and now Rockfin to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis, and I am a musician, music producer, and writer-slash-editor coming at you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, and I will be your host for today. And I'm going to now, we have a bit of a different show today. I'm going to introduce my co-host, Matthew Crawford. Hello, Matthew. Hey, Liam. So what's, what's well, should we introduce Jessica and then answer the question of what's uh, thus far going to be different today? Sure. Okay. Hi, Jessica. Hi. <laughs> um, how are you both doing? I'm well. A-okay? <laughs> and if, as far as we know, so is Matthias Desmet. Now, unfortunately, um, we are having some technical difficulties and have not yet been able to um, get Matthias on into the background. So we're hoping that that's still going to work out as planned, but we want to be totally upfront and say it's entirely possible that we're going to have to reschedule uh, Matthias's appearance on the show. So I, I apologize in advance uh, for that because uh, we all very much are excited to talk to him. And fingers crossed, last week we had Charles Rixey who joined us slightly into the stream. We may wind up with a similar situation today. Yeah. In the meantime, in the meantime, this totally random share. Um, I, we've started doing uh, uh, our own cold brew at home, and 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 I highly recommend. Like this is this has been like the best summer drink. Because uh, I don't do like, you know, sugar sodas. I don't do, uh, you know, uh, I, and I don't do uh, iced tea. It, that, mm. it was just never my thing. But this is like the greatest cold drink that I've had ever in my life. And, and uh, we just put a little bit of white milk in there. A little bit of white milk, a little bit of cream, and then pour the coffee in. And, and, and this has helped me handle the ridiculous Texas heat. This has been like the worst summer uh, oh. in terms of just like you, know, you walk outside and you're sweating with like 110 degrees. It's not, it's not that bad right now, actually, actually right now it's, it's a very reasonable 82 degrees, but, oh, um, wow. but some of the summer was just brutal here. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, what? We, without Matthias here, um, I, I took some notes from the book and, and maybe, maybe we should begin with a discussion of some of the notes because um, we would just be getting ahead of the conversation, if nothing else. But we may just, you know, have our own conversation about our, you know, our interpretations of some of his ideas in the meantime. That sounds wonderful. Like a, a good way to get started. Yep, you'll yep. have to frame I, I, the uh, the like the uh, the paragraphs or the sections of the book because sh ashamedly, I admit I haven't been able to read it yet. Um, 
So yeah, that, that would be wonderful if you could do that for me. The psychology of totalitarianism. Yeah, and um, and I feel like having having it's a very easy to read book. In fact, it, it's um, it's pretty quick. Um, what I would describe it as is a conversation starter about um, you know opening up like a next reality. It, it, this would be a very very difficult topic to do like, you know, full scientific analysis about. And in a sense, um, it, it, it would be almost, it, it would be almost, you know, maybe, maybe there's a sense in which it's a call for every human being to be doing that themselves. And, and I'll explain how I get there to that point, but um, I'm going to kind of jump to um, the, the early chapters in the book are, are good discussion. Yeah, you know, they kind of lay a groundwork for, you know, questioning reality and reasons that we, we question reality. Oh, uh, somebody just mentioned, by the way, uh, Liam, um, they say we're not live on Rumble. Yeah, I'm looking into it. Okay. Um, chapter six is where you get sort of the, the like most clear, like laid down definition of what mass formation is and what he's talking about. And um, you know, mass formation—it is—it is, it is what most people would think, which is that uh, um, you know, you've got sort of group thing going on. You've got a bunch of people acting. You know, maybe a mass might be described as something which becomes its own game theoretic unit, as opposed to individuals being, you know, their own game theoretic units and you know, playing uh, you know, cooperative and defective games, uh, defection games, uh, you know, with others around them. Um, but there are four conditions for mass formation. The first one is generalized loneliness. And um, you know, he goes back to the enlightenment uh, and says, you know, that, you know, we thought that we were getting, you know, something great, perhaps without a cost, but um, enlightenment's uh, accelerated the generalized loneliness of people. And um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna question him on that one. Um, I, I'm not I'm not sure if he's right or if he's wrong there, but I, I, I've got some questions about it. But I do believe that generalized loneliness absolutely makes people easier to manipulate, makes it easier to control people's you know frames of reality, um, and and that it is you know something that that lots of people are experiencing. We can see that in, in data and surveys, if nothing else. Um, condition two. Well, let, can I, can yeah. I add to that before I forget? Because I'm sure. very forgetful. Um, the, the loneliness thing really, um, resonates in me because of the, of the, 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 it's not even a need. It's a, yeah, it's a requirement, I think, within the human being to, um, to be together with other human beings. So it's, it's it's it, I don't know I don't know if this makes sense, but if you're lonely and there's a crowd, it it's it's almost going to be irrelevant what they're standing for. If you really just hate being alone, you'll tend mm. toward them anyway. So I'm not sure if that made sense, but uh, anyway. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true for most people. Um, and uh, number two is lack of meaning in life. Mm. Number three is free-floating anxiety. This is the one that um, that was the toughest for me to understand what he meant the first time I heard him discussing it. 
And so uh, I, I'm, I'm going to stop here and explain what uh, what free floating means. Um, free floating means that it's like it's it's it, there's no one general target, and therefore it's unresolvable. You know, it's the lack of resolution, right? The, there's just anxiety, and it's like it's not like oh, this event happened. And therefore, I'm ang you know ang anxious. It's not like you know somebody could work through it with therapy. You know, they can't even put a, a pin on what the problem is. Hmm. Perhaps, and 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 it may be that there are other reasons why anxiety is unresolvable. But um, that's condition three: free floating anxiety. Condition four is uh, frustration, and it sounds like you know free floating frustration. So again, you know, you don't necessarily have a target. You're just frustrated. And and therefore you act aggressively, you know, or, or or it's paired with aggression, you know, generalized aggression that might be, you know, pushed anywhere. And I I think that this is uh, this is a pretty good list. I think that he's he's doing a good job of of beginning to describe uh, circumstances that are difficult. I don't know if we should consider it a complete list, or if we should consider it the exact. Um, the exact, you know, maybe they're, uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue to expand the list. Maybe mass formation happens with where most people have a, a majority of this, you know, of some subset. I don't know. I, I don't know what the arguments would be as to why this is a complete set. I think that there's uh, less necessary science, but uh, I, I do think that it's that it's uh, reasonable to, you know, have a list as a conversation starter, whether or not we can do something like scientifically validate whether or not it's true. Now, just before we continue the conversation, I have an update on Matthias. Okay. And I, uh, there's a piece of information that may be privileged, so I'm not yet going to reveal that. I'm going to find out if we can say it. But basically, um, there, there, it simply was a, it's one of those simple matters of, of crossed wires miscommunication. But he's, he's, in the middle of being interviewed by someone far, 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 far larger in platform than us right now uh -huh. in a way that excites me very much. So I see this as a positive thing. And like I said before, now that we know this is the case, we're going to be able to reschedule. We will have Matthias on, in fact, to be the part two to this conversation. But I do think this has worked out really well in the sense that we wouldn't have otherwise necessarily scheduled this specific topic with this specific trio of people. So I say we continue on the path that you've started us, Matthew. And meanwhile, I'm gonna see if I can say who it is that he's being interviewed by. I know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all in the same email thread. I just don't know if it's currently live or if it's something that's pre-recorded and we're not supposed to break it. Right. Yeah, of course. We can do a guessing game, though, with the audience. And in fact, this is perhaps an opportunity to engage more directly and immediately with the audience. Johnny Nice. Yeah, that would be fun. Playing Johnny is nice. fun. Let's do that. Yeah, let's do it. Johnny Nice suggests it might be co-Rogan. Uh, Are we allowed uh, to tell them it's not? Because they could probably figure it out by the process of elimination. And maybe we're not supposed to... Well, let's let's just... <laughs> 
let's take note of the guesses. Put your right. guesses in the chat. Who is in either the alternative or mainstream media? Who is Matthias currently being interviewed by? And then by the end of this show, we will likely know whether or not we're allowed to tell you. And, or or it is live and someone will go, guys, I just found this on Google. Uh, and then there will be some kind of no prize. Um, <laughs> uh and so just while we're here, I'll bring up the comments that have come so far. Paula says, thank you. Um, General ba Bakshistein says, hey, Jess, amazing show with Dr. McCairn. See, this is another example. Thank you very much. Uh, this is another example of what me and you, Liam, were talking about off camera just now with regard to uh, music. Um, this person is saying that they enjoyed my interview with uh, Kevin McCarron the other day. It was more like, from my point of view, I sat there most of the whole, the entire time and just listened to him talk about neuroscience, which was like, I actually had the thought during this, this interview, which I think was three hours, that I can't believe that I'm getting this like education from these top people in their fields who have decades of experience yeah. <laughs> like it's it's kind of surreal so it's nice that somebody uh, enjoyed the fact that i was there but i felt like if i wasn't there it would have been just as good because it was basically a lecture about neuroscience it was really good um, well jessica do you feel yourself being essentially a conduit or a confidant for people you know, like that that's what heroes I know, hold on a minute because uh, it's going to be a compliment. But um, that's what heroes are in a movie. You know, the, the primary character is who the audience is um, experiencing the story through. And I think that applies not just in fiction. I think that's why you have people who become uh, thought leaders or community leaders or uh, the annoying term influencers. Um, do you find yourself being that for other people like you're learning and then through your learning you're helping other people learn as well in addition to the teaching you do oh i hope so uh that that's actually the most exciting part of the brain stuff for me like um it's exciting, really. I mean that word for me to think that people are watching me go through the process and they actually care. It's, it's. I, I don't know why that excites me, but it's like, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bonding experience for me. I think, even though you know, I'll never meet most of the people, or maybe I'll never even know that they're there. But it's still a bonding experience to. To, to think that that's that's happening so now this is I interesting now this is interesting because i think that uh the mass formation conversation can wrap back around to this well let's do that and, 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 uh, but in in a very specific way and um and and we don't have much to go so uh this is actually like that right there is a story that i think is is worth you know, uh, that could be worth its own podcast, but I do think that uh, very soon we could just wrap back around it and, and I'll explain why. Um, so we've got these these four conditions and I'm actually gonna, you know, I'm gonna share my screen so that the audience can see what these conditions are, just to make it a little bit easier since, you know, like things like free floating are, are a little bit tougher to, to think about. 
I didn't know what free floating really meant when I first read it, when I first saw it, but, um, okay. So basically you have human beings who are in an inhuman state, I think is, is maybe the, you know, the, the easiest way to say it and you know, just summarize all these things. Like this is inhuman. And when people are in this inhuman, you know, specifically in human state, they're agitated. They need something. It's easier to direct them. And, and, and in fact, you don't even have to direct them that much for the most part. Once you give them something, uh, they direct themselves toward it. Right. And so if you have one good leader, one magnetic personality who seems to have strength on their own and, uh, you know, and, Perhaps they they stoke something about, you know, some subset of people. All those people may gravitate there. And then you've got groupthink. Yeah. You've got mass formation. Um, and, and perhaps uh, Desmet could have explained that a little bit uh, better than I did. Um, control over masses. Now, he, here's the part of the book that I think he, uh, he cut short on. And he, he does say, look, um, you know, conspiracy theorists can – become their own mass formation. Mm. And, uh, you know, perhaps this is important to think about. And I actually have been trying to warn um, the resistance side about it's the possibility that it's that it could be going into mass formation or even be directed into mass formation. One thing that that Matthias doesn't seem to do in the book is talk about how it is that control can be constructed. Like, he, he lays out, okay, you know, it's mass formation, but he doesn't really answer the question, you know, does this happen naturally or does it happen by people directing the show? And I wanted to steer the conversation there because I think that once you identify that this is like a social technology, the idea that people would not seek to apply that technology and direct it seems nonsensical. There are always people looking for the greatest levers of power. Therefore, if there are people who understand this technology intuitively or otherwise, then I would think that that's actually a lot of the struggle of the world, uh, which is to find ways to control masses of people. And this is a lot of the reason I think why we do not have good educational systems, why the Prussian model wound up dominating the world. You know, it's a terrible model for education. We, we know scientifically all kinds of improvements that can be made or just wipe that system away. Um, but, but we keep, we keep using this system because it is specifically understood to dehumanize and, and leave children open to brainwashing. And then you have people who can come in and direct mass formation. And so th this is something I wanted to, to pose to him and see what he would say about it. But um, he, he doesn't, he doesn't get that far in the book. He, he, he leaves that open. So now going back, going back around, and, and we could discuss that, but I, I think, I think Jessica's story is really, really interesting on this level because uh, I, I think the reason a lot of us um, appreciate Jessica is that she did not, um, she did not get to the position where she is in science by following the route of the people who are you know, perhaps most brainwashed in the system, right? Like the, most of the people who are scientists, most of the people who are professionals with, 
you know, top-notch credentials and this, that, and the other. They go straight through high school with straight A's. They, they, um, you know, they get into an Ivy League university. You know, they have some list of awards that, you know, that looks, you know, shiny on a resume. Why have awards? <laughs> well, well, Jessica, it, the way it, you it, say, it, you, the way you laugh, maybe think maybe you didn't get straight A's. Oh God, no. No, I, I laughed because I'm thinking of Pierre Corey because whenever we get together on, on a call, uh, we, we have a laugh about this um, because we have the same kind of trajectory. And it's, 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 it's true what you said, Matthew, and it's true about Pierre too. Like Pierre is this, um, he's a shining example of, of a medical doctor, of, of a person with integrity, uh, of a funny guy that you just kind of want to have a beer with. And, you know, his story is similar to mine. Um, like I, I flunked out of university during my undergrad. Um, uh, you know, you're young, you're in your early twenties, late teens. And, um, you know, you, you, you have friends and they're really, really fun. And they're always asking you to go out and do stupid shit. So you have to go. <laughs> So anyway, um, yeah, but when I went back, uh, I went in back full throttle, like fourth gear. I was so ready. Um, yeah, I, I, I killed it. So I have, I, I, this is not a joke. I have zeros on my university transcript from my undergrad and I have one hundreds. There's like, mm. they're, they're <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. It actually, uh, it, 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 every single person I've ever interviewed with has looked at that and said, what the hell is up with you? Like, it's a very weird thing and it's hard to describe. So, um, yeah, you're right, Matthew. I, I didn't have a normal course. And, and I put myself through university by being, uh, by working in the service industry. So I had all this like, uh, uh, life experience. I, I guess that's the easiest way to say it, but. It, that's where I learned how to be a social being. Um, you know, I've talked about this before. When when you have to handle a large room by yourself filled with hungry people and a chef that's like throwing knives and stuff, you have to become really diplomatic really fast. <laughs> yeah. And so I learned the most valuable skills I have from that experience. Um yeah, not that I'm an expert or anything, but I sure did learn a lot. Um, well, and, and and there was a comment from Paula who uh, said, oh, I smell stereotyping. And then immediately afterwards, you give a perfect example of breaking the stereotype. So I, I think that just proves a good point. Um, but I do think you're right, though, that there is this path that uh, if you do avoid ever winding up with that real world work slash life experience, like working in a busy kitchen then you're going to wind up without the edges you need to be able to then grip the next important steps in whatever career you pick. And I, I know for years I've been hearing about this problem of academics entering the system, you know, so, well, sort of coming out truly straight A's, going right into the system, becoming whatever it is, uh, Rhodes Scholars, uh, getting their AP and IB certifications, and just never actually going into the field and then staying in the university system and teaching yeah. whatever it is they were learning, but without having advanced it at all or, or gone through a rough and tumble. And that's not to say studying is easy. 
you know, that's why people fail out sometimes is because it just is too hard. Um, but yeah, I, I like, I like that, that you very quickly gave an example of how uh, the stereotype can uh, break. Uh, Ellen Jr. RN says on Rumble, my average was W, withdrawal from course. <laughs> now, I, I can relate to that. Yeah. I had a couple of those too. Um, yeah, when, when I did my applied math, my undergrad degree was applied math. And uh, so I had to, um, people are going to find this funny, but uh, way back in the day when I was doing my undergrad, we were learning basic uh, computer programming. <laughs> Nobody even knows what that is. And so that switched to Fortran. And when I was younger, I had no capability in computer programming. I mean, 0, 0.00. <laughs> and uh, I think that was all in my head, though. I learned that now. It's like, I thought I couldn't do it. Therefore, I couldn't do it. That's what happened to me, I think. Um, so this is where I hit kind of a frustration wall, but but I, I beat it down, man, and I used that stuff in the end. Mm. But yeah, I, I, you know, at, at the risk of uh, offending people, I think if you if you don't um, if you don't have those um, experiences in life where you might be a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, and maybe like make the decision that isn't the direct route. Uh, you miss out on a lot of stuff and you miss out on really interesting people. Um, yeah, I, I know you can't read my mind, but I'm thinking of my old restaurant days. <laughs> Those were some really, really fun times uh, with fantastic people. I still remember every single person uh, to this day. Um, and of course, you're kind of like a family in that union unit and, and you, uh, you kind of become a better person diplomatic person, you know, with those other people surrounding you to support you. So, yeah, it's nice to talk about that. Thanks. <laughs> well, we can reveal it. Ladies and gentlemen, Matthias Desmond is in fact <laughs> on Tucker Carlson today. Uh, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Apparently it has been known for a couple of days. So that shows once again, Jessica, what you were saying earlier off mic, there is way too much going on. We missed yeah. the announcement that he was on Tucker Carlson, but giving credit to Diamond A2U on Rumble, who actually got that first. Uh, and then Johnny Nice, who corrected his earlier guess of co-Rogan uh, to uh, <laughs> Carlson. So I just want to say that's a pretty good, you know, show to beat us out just in terms of prestige. So I'm not too offended personally. No, me neither. <laughs> and to clarify, it was, it's a simple, this was one of those incidents where an email somewhere didn't get sent or got lost in the matrix. That's what happened. So we're all good. He will be back on the show at some point. So not to worry there. And I'm, I'm, I'm always happy because I love you guys. And I, I think this is, uh, you know, it's been too long since the three of us were together anyway. So, um, but on the subject of mass formation, I mean, it's a good question. Does this happen spontaneously? And I think it does, but I think the circumstances have to be there. And I think the circumstances are really well outlined by his four points. Um, so yeah, it's it's and I'm not sure they all have to be satisfied. Maybe only one. I mean, I think it depends on your character. If you have um if you have uh 
trauma induced from being abandoned when you were young, then the loneliness one, the generalized loneliness is probably going to affect you much more than someone who has like really, um, well, who wasn't abandoned when they were young, for example. Uh, and I, I think everybody has free floating anxiety. That's just like, that's just confusion. And who the hell isn't confused right now on the planet? Literally, like, does anyone have a straight idea about what the hell is going on in the world right now? I don't. <laughs> well, now, and- now, here, here's a question though. Um, like I would say, I would say that confusion comes from the fire hose of information. And that fire, the fire hose of information is something that, that has definitely evolved in our lifetimes. And we have, you know, these mass medias that are controlled by just a very small number of corporations. And it's clear that they can and do unify messaging, right? They coordinate, they coordinate messaging. Um, So we know that they're levers of control. Now, the question is, um, do they know that they create so much confusion? You know, is that intentional? I would say, like, to me, the answer is an obvious yes. But I know that I talk to people who go, no, you know, uh, things are just sort of happening you know, naturally, accidentally, everything's sort of coming together. Like, like I, I don't see it that way. Like, I have the opposite opinion of Jessica on this one. Um, like, when I, when I look around the world and I see the, these conditions, I think, oh, this is, you know, it, like these things are so obvious once you start talking about them, and and the tools to create them are so obvious. And what mass media is, uh, you know, is it, it, it's such an obvious tool for creating so much of these things, and and the school systems such an obvious tool. Like, like yeah. if I, if I wanted to be an evil mastermind, I mean, this is the way I would start doing it. Just like, it, it just seems obvious. Yeah. The creation of the circumstance to yeah. allow the spontaneity. Yeah. If, totally. if, if you can have control of any of those levers, then you participate in the negotiation of the game of creating it. If mm-hmm. you are psychopathic and you just don't care about people or, or, you know, you know, whatever precondition there is there. Um, and he talks about, he talks about psychopaths. He, um, I, I think he, um, I, I disagree with him. Something that he said in the book, he, he said, you know, people mistake, people um, talk about whether or not there are psychopaths at the top, for instance. And, um, and he, he just sort of, ma- he makes just a, a dismissal without any warrant. Uh, dismissal of, of what? That there are psychopaths uh, creating yeah. the circumstances? Right, creating, creating the circumstances running the show. I, I think that what he's doing is saying, is saying that we don't have to answer that question for the purpose of this theory. But what he does is, is I think he, he phrases, if that's true, he phrases it incorrectly, or maybe he, he just believes that, that there aren't people with control. Whereas, right. um, whereas like, I, I feel very, very certain that there are. And part of the reason I feel certain that there are is I had an unusual childhood where I grew up in a training program for these skills specifically, right? Like the, you know, the things that he goes through, how it is that you, you know, uh, um, take advantage of the shaping of a person's reality. And I'll explain a story about that. Um, so, and, and, and just for, for people who aren't, uh, who haven't read any, uh, any of my writing or, or the couple of times that I've, I've talked this through in articles and I've still, I haven't explained it completely because it's a very, very challenging and difficult thing to explain. But there was uh, a, a program run by the U.S. military, run out of the DOD. It was, uh, it was something that, that came through a pipeline of uh, intelligence and uh, Silicon Valley research during the 1970s, including the Stanford Research Institute. And that's where, where they were doing um, you know, the, the initial stuff involving 
um, remote viewing and para, para uh, psychology, you know, uh, experimentation, testing, training, and, um, and uh, you know, I, I'm going to say this very quickly. All of that was bogus, um, but, but it'll take me a long time to walk through, you know, um, all the reasons I, I feel that way. And I, and I know about those programs. Um, those programs were taken up uh, through a guy named um, Jim Channing, who was part of a military think tank. And there is a very goofy movie written about his experience called The Men Who Stare at Goats. But it, it, that, that itself is, is, you know, a good example of propaganda, kind of like, you know, make these people look goofy so that people won't look into the seriousness of what they were doing. And then um, and his sort of partner in crime was um, was a guy who was um, put at the head of all of uh, U.S. military intelligence, reorganizing U.S. military intelligence. It's the first of two reorganizations. The second was after 9-11 when the DNI was established. The the um, the person who, uh, that's Avril, uh, Avril Haynes now, who sits at the top and directs all of the military, of the, both the civilian and the military intelligence apparatus. She's in charge of um, setting the priorities and the protocols, right? So that is now a unified system of intelligence, um, you know, through that position, the DNI. Um but before that was um, was Albert Stubblebine, um, who you know reorganized from 1980 to 1984, and that was um, and that is after you know the Trilateral Commission got into um, you know the presidential administrations and began you know directing uh, the directions that all that was going to go. But um, that that program, the remote viewing program, and and the surrounding programs, I, I call it remote viewing, but people should really know that it was it was all kinds of things. Um, I have a question about remote viewing when you're finished. Okay, um, we'll, we'll come back to it, but uh, my, my answer is going to be it, it, it's all BS and it's for the purpose of, of seeing, of sifting for certain types of people. Um, uh, so, you know, they, they began to, um, to get into new age communities. And the one that my parents was involved in was called the Association for Research and Enlightenment. And they, they you know, through the, the people there, like, encourage them to train their children with these methods, but they would also have like their own fairs where, you know, people would go and have their children tested for, you know, psychic training. Uh, they would go to your house and test you there. It got to be really creepy. Um, but I, I think they were just looking for ways to get into homes where they could uh, use people as experiments. Um, now I had a brother. Um, he's deceased now. Uh, he had a very, very uh, troubling life and he was, he was a, he was pointed to as the uh, the highest testing psychic child, and and what they told him and what my parents told him from from this point on from the time he was about eight years old on was that he was um, like the highest testing psychic child, mm. and that he that he was that they knew that he was going to be a psychic leader on earth. And because of this, and, and the things that they would say were sort of his, his training, things that he could do with his power, he would begin to practice manipulation of people, right? Like they, they taught him that he could have emotional control over people. And here's the thing about him is, um, you know, very much the opposite of me, very charming. <laughs> you know, he, he was, um, he was, uh, the easy rock and roll musician. Uh, he had, you know, model good looks. He, he self-taught himself 40 instruments by the time he was 13. You know, that was, that was what he applied himself to. Um, you know, people would have said he was a musical prodigy, you know, whatever. Um, 
And, and so he had the kinds of skill set that attracted attention anyway, right? Um, but here, here's an example of one of the things that he, that he would do. And he would very often try to make me his partner in crime. Um, like, let's say that there, were, there was, you know, we were someplace, maybe my oldest brother, he was a, um, you know, scholarship soccer player. Uh, let's say that, he, that we were at the soccer field and it was, you know, me and Chad. Um, and yeah, I was the youngest. Chad was in the middle. Andrew, uh, who was the soccer player, um, he, he was the oldest of the three. So, yeah, maybe Chad and I would be there. It'd be another group of kids. Um, he would he would plan, you know, what he was going to go convince those kids to believe. And it would be really, really exceptionally difficult things. Right. Like there's there's a group of people that we met one time. He convinced all of them. That, he, that they experienced a spaceship landing next to them. And he was so convincing. And, and it's hard to explain to people how convincing someone can be if they practice you know, the art of, of bringing people into a group who, feel that, you know, who want to feel the need and accepted around someone like him who could serve as a polarizing leader. And, and I, I remember... And, I think I was probably nine-ish years old. I can't remember for sure. But um, when when I graduated high school, I met uh, a girl who, who had been part of that crowd that he had convinced that they all saw a spaceship. And we had both recently graduated from high school, and I talked to her, and we talked about that moment. And I explained to her, I was like, I was like, you know, like, like, you know, I, I wonder how many people still think they saw a spaceship. And she was so angry with me. She was so convinced that she had seen that spaceship. She had seen the spaceship and, and she was so angry with me, like, like wanted, like, you know, like, you know, wound up screaming at me, you know, was had tears in her eyes. And I'd, I'd barely, I'd, I probably had gotten 15 words out of my mouth in the entire conversation from the time that I said, you know, or that I, that I sort of like brought up the, the conversation and, and had taken a position that it wasn't real, it shattered our relationship permanently. And that sounds no, familiar, Matthew. <laughs> no one did. There was no stepping back from the conversation, but you know, in a matter of minutes, he convinced this girl something that she would never be able to give up without having something like a traumatic breakdown. I think that gets done to people all the time and that that is that is the framing of, you know, the reality gets framed for people. There is a matrix built for people. And I think that that what Desmond's book does is it brings us up to the precipice of that discussion. It says, look, um, these are conditions for the matrix and we can see historically we can see where it's happened. You know, he doesn't really explore the, okay, so there's this technology. So if this technology exists, like, it's like a weapon. Like, if there's a weapon and it's almost invisible, do you not think people are going to be using it? And the answer is, of course, people are going to be using it. But there's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, more, it's a more interesting and challenging question, what kind of people are capable of using it. And there is actually research on that within the DOD. And so um, I, I plan to point to some of that research in a future article, but it's been uh, a real challenging slog to be able to do that, to do, um, you know, the, the pandemic research, um, you know, especially I, I think the, 
the DMED project has has siphoned an enormous amount of my you know time and energy away um, because it's clear that uh, um, it, it, it's clear that there is a group of people who are uh, actively fighting the dissemination of the actual information of what's happened there. Just because there's a natural break in your sentence, bringing up Johnny Nice's comment, have you guys ever looked into the mRNA DARPA connection and the biodefense-related significance this implies for the billion people medical trial? Whitney Webb would be a great guest to talk to. Three things. First, I have looked into that. I think Matthew has as well, and possibly Jessica. And I will pull up uh, some of my uh, writing on it that has not yet been published, just in case it's interesting. Um, second, I completely agree. Whitney Webb would be a wonderful person to talk to specifically about that topic. And she has a new book about um, Jeffrey Epstein coming out. Two books, actually. And third, what do you guys think? I'd really like to talk to her. She seems like a really interesting creature. Um, and I haven't looked into it enough to give an intelligent answer. And I have two questions for Matthew when we're done answering this question. Oh, you can um, ask him right away if you like, I'm sure. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, what ha you don't have the answers. I, you know, you don't have to have the answers, but I have to ask the questions. Um, what happens to a high psychic leader? We can define that uh, when they die. Because when I, when I think about it in my own, you know, weird brain, um, I think of Obi-Wan Kenobi when Darth Vader struck him down and he became more powerful than anyone could have possibly imagined. So is it like, like, I guess we have to define what a high psychic leader is and what that means they can do before we can, you know, assign any uh, transference of, of capacity, I suppose would be a yeah. interesting question I, I i guess that would be like you know to ask what what happened with the remaining german people um you know or what happened with the good nazis once hitler was out of the picture or um I, i'm trying to i'm trying to think if there are other good examples where there's no replacement you know like with uh yeah. with a, a lot of the communist nations you have sort of a replacement effect someone who who takes that central polarity onto them um, but, but Matthew, I, I, think, I think a lot of the good Nazis came to Canada, the United States, Australia, South America. <laughs> I think that's the literal answer to your question. Well, I, I, yeah, certainly there were a number of Nazis who who scattered around the world, but not like, you know, not like the millions and millions of Germans, you know, I, and I, I don't know the answer to that particularly well. Um, the question I have thought about a little bit more that may relate a little bit is I've, I've thought about what happened to Berlin or Germany in general because of the, the East-West split. Uh, once the, the Berlin Wall came down, um, people from East Germany did not succeed well in the German economy, right? And, and, and you know, you could have people with genius IQs who were, you know, making, you know, great grades at school who learned math and physics and chemistry and all these hard subjects, and, and, and they did not fit in well with the capitalist system and there's an interesting question as to why like if you cut people off from market capitalism or you know like capitalism is a tough word like are we talking about you know marxist capitalism definition or, or adam smith i'll just say markets if you cut people out of the market system for two generations do they sort of you know do they have a form of dehumanization 
in far as connecting to the sociality of the economy that keeps them from understanding, you know, like learning the basic education of how to participate? Do they sort of expect, you know, to be in a system where you are granted a job by someone who points a finger at you and says, you do this, you get to do this um, after you achieve so many, you know, marks on your, your card. Um, so it may be that, uh, that people who were fully hypnotized by the Nazi system simply like maybe most of them just had to grow old and die. Like they were never going to, to break out of that trance. And I do have one story. My father-in-law was telling me specifically uh, of talking to someone, um, I think uh, out in like Ponder, Texas, who had been, uh, you know, a German uh, um, and she, she was old and he talked to her and, and she, she had been a Nazi and she said, you know, well, you know, he made things better for us. Right. That was her, that was the thing that she introduced into the conversation about Nazi Germany and Hitler. You know, it was like it, she she didn't really ever process the horrors of what all that meant. It was just, well, my life was better. You know, and this is just an ordinary person, you know, but they couldn't um, extend their just ordinary empathy within their social circle. Um, you know, that, that requires a lot of brainwashing and control on some levels. And I think that people really are being trained to take advantage of that. When you know that, um, I mean, you know, I, I think that that's what, what my family was involved in. In fact, I mean, you know, that what my brother learned to do was astonishing. The stories that you would hear about him um, would just make your jaw drop, but you know, he, he didn't become a leader because he got into drugs, became, you know, a mafia drug dealer, got involved with the family who would, you know, um, who, you know, were involved in selling the drugs at, at like the Grateful Dead and the fish concerts. Um, and, uh, you know, he wound up, um, you know, just kind of going off the rails, uh, before he could, um, mold himself into a functioning adult, I guess you could say he was on drugs at the age of 13 and, you know, um, well, he had this potential. He, 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 for all intents and purposes, was a high psychic leader because he had that potential. He just didn't realize it. So, like, anyway, I guess it's an unanswerable question. Can I ask the other one? Yeah. This is something, it, it may or may not be related, but you triggered something. So, I guess it's related. Uh, I, I was thinking about this on, a, on my walk today, um, about this. Uh, remote viewing thing you should define that for people who don't know what that means so oh, right right let me ask um, before i forget like i'm i'm wondering and i don't think this applies to everyone i think it applies to a subset of people and i have no idea why these particular people have these particular abilities but i think some people are probably remote viewing all the time and they they don't know it uh, or they're, they're not able to use it, let's say, to any benefit in this reality because they don't recognize or have an ability to process it because our brain processes always have to make things rational so that we don't go crazy, right? Like, um, you know, you always have to come back uh, down to earth or whatever if you're, um, if you're uh, I don't know, tripping balls on some kind of... <laughs> <laughs> exogenous agent, you know what I mean? <laughs> you always have to come back to this three-dimensional reality. Um, and so 
yeah, what do, what do you have to say about that? Because I, I have no idea. I, I just thought, like, this came into my head today, and I'm like, wow, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I personally think that there's absolutely nothing to it. Um, and I'll, I'll, go ahead, I'll go ahead and define it. Awesome! <laughs> I'll go ahead and define it for everybody who's out there, what remote viewing is. And, and, and I don't know why remote viewing got to be sort of the, the one label that got applied. Because to of the men who stare at games. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was before that people would just refer to remote viewing. And they really, they were talking about a, a, um, a, a skill set that um, like Jim Channing proposed to, uh, you know, U.S. military leadership. And they said, yeah, we'll do this. And, you know, the head of military leadership said, OK, we're going to teach people how to do all these things, you know, uh, read people's minds, telekinesis, walk through walls, you know. But for some reason, um, this all these different possibilities congealed around the one term remote viewing. But what remote viewing is specifically is, OK, you can just see what's happening some other place. Oh. And, um, you know, but the thing that I'll say is, you know, I, I watched, you know, uh, numerous tests of people trying to remote view. And, you know, none of them were successful whatsoever, even including people who bragged about being really good at it. Um, there have been, you know, numerous challenges of people doing this. And, you know, the only the only claims of success have always been in sort of like privately viewed controlled situations. There's the Yuri Geller test at, at um, Stanford Research Institute. And I wrote an article about him. And my strong opinion is he's a complete and total fraud, um, but that, that, that they, they essentially gave him the toolkit to be a famous fraud. I think that the Stanford Research Institute um, was specifically uh, targeting uh, paranormal, paranormal research because um, the, the actual research that had come out of the Soviet Union, and I have a video in that article that talks about this, was the Soviets figured out that people who were interested in paranormal um, stuff in general were easier to turn to create spies out of. That they and that they have some sort of um, uh, let's see uh, to uh, identify potential assets for manipulation. Those who believed, it. yeah, um, uh, what what Leo Biddle is saying uh, in chat right now, yeah, um, that the people who were interested in psychic stuff were the people who um, like perhaps their minds were open to having themselves stoked by by being shown that they were right right, right. um like you were right all along you know you are a superhero <laughs> you know uh no, and, sorry did you know that michael jackson was his best man <laughs> no way <laughs> that's, that's interesting man. i didn't know that um but i just uh, read that because i don't know who he is he, he's a magician how funny <laughs> yeah um, you know, the, the one of the interesting facets of of this is uh, there's a there's a program in uh, intelligence where everybody in U.S. intelligence, like all the, the SIGINT people, uh, signals intelligence people, they're given uh, lie detector tests every year and uh, lie detector tests. They're not admissible in court, but they're interesting for investigators. And here's how that works is. You know, they're testing your physiological responses to telling the truth and telling lies. And overall, like per question, it's like a 5347 slightly weighted coin flip. Right. You, you know, you, there, there, nobody's invented a lie detector test. It's just like, bing, this person's telling the truth. This person's lying. Um, but investigators find it interesting because they can figure out what is making people nervous. And then they know right. what to investigate. Right. Right. There is a subset of people for like who just 
show no physiological response to uh, to the typical polygraph tests. But they're psychopaths, right? I think so. I think that's exactly no, right. I, I think what, that's fact. Like I, I've I've watched a couple of documentaries about this because I'm really intrigued by the whole subject matter, and I think uh, it, it is a fact that psychopaths are are pretty much the only people who can fool a lie detector because they don't have like it's based on the the sympathetic nervous response, right? And it's detected, you know, your heart rate and your sweat and the, the agitation. And, you know, so, yeah. Right. These are people, these are people who can lie so well that, that generally a machine or crowds of people are not going to detect it in the same way. Right. Right. Um, like, it, you know, it, it's sort of the opposite of a nervous person where, you know, no matter, uh, you know, no matter what they say, um, you know, the crowd is going to. Or how innocent they may be. No matter how innocent they may be. It's the opposite of that. Um, but the, the DOD literally has a program to sift and separate those people from the crowd. And one of the things that Matthias Desmond talks about in his book is um, in, in the Nazi uh, forces, they would test people for psychopathy and separate those people out. How did they test them? I, I don't know. Um, but uh, he, he mentions in the book that they were tested. Um and, and separated away. And I think, I think this, this serves several purposes. One, it, it, it separates out the psychopaths so that you can train them, you know, to, to control people better and to, you know, you, you know who the people are that you might, you know, um, well, that is so interesting, you know, particularly, particularly, uh, unusual missions. Um, uh, aside from oh that, my gosh, aside from that when, that's brilliant. Yeah. Aside from that, um, I think that he is right that it helps the mass formation process to remove the psychopaths because people who don't ever experience psychopaths, who never figure out what that actually is, what that means, because we're so different. Right. Yeah. We're so, you know, the psychopaths are so different from the rest of the crowd. People who never understand that don't wind up imagining that they could be controlled by exactly. this thing that's controlling them. Exactly. So that that is, you know, he doesn't list it as like one of the, the preconditions for mass formation. He just points out, hey, look, in these circumstances that are the most famous historical circumstances, you happen to have people specifically organizing the removal of the psychopaths. So the, you know, the Soviets wound up doing um, doing their, you know, para parapsychology research that the, that, you know, we had good intelligence on what they were doing there but what they were doing was sifting for psychopaths because the psychopaths seemed to be magnetically interested in paranormal research why i don't know but you know you you, you throw up a tent that says you know paranormal stuff it may be it may be that what psychopaths are are people who have learn to fool people so much that they they want what, like a what, justified, you're talking about a sociopath a just, right no no uh, well uh, so sociopaths is, are made and psychopaths are born so you're talking mm, about the ones who are made right yeah and 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 so let, let's um the ones who are made there's there's a little bit of a misunderstanding about that it is true that that a lot of the the successful psychopaths are people who are born that way but there are psychopaths who uh, seem to get that way after suffering like traumatic brain injury 
And it's unclear, like, what this line is that separates sociopaths and psychopaths. Like, but it all, it's all based it's on neurological damage. It's biological, right? I that's think the, that's the separation. It, it, you know, according to what I've learned from what, what I've watched. Yeah, there, there do seem to be people who who are born that way without any any damage that's impairing the rest of their being, you know, somehow. Um, and, and it may be that, that this happened because it was evolutionarily stable for the tribe to generally have one psychopath around. Yeah, the, the extra creative one. Well, this is it, and this I I um MK Ultra, the program that the United States and the Canadian governments ran, experimenting um in a, in a variety of ways, particularly with with LSD, the creation of LSD through that program, and then the use of psychedelics as a uh, tool to essentially brainwash people. That's sort of like the surface level of what we're talking about now. That's all declassified. That's like mainstream knowledge to a degree. And uh, just as we're talking about all this and and now discussing in traumatic brain injury, like a, a lesser than compared to the uh, non-injured brain, which somehow is perhaps either just changed or added on to, just thinking about for those who know how or who have experienced psychedelics themselves, the way they seem to work is they amplify every part of your brain's conscious activity and make connections that weren't previously there, which I would argue is not necessarily on its surface damage more. So that sounds like potential healing or just simply creation of new generation, new neurological pathways. But and I think that's why in discussions around psychedelic culture, there's this concept of set and setting, which means if you're going to experience a psychedelic uh, a trip, you want to go in with a certain mindset and in an environment that will not affect that mindset negatively, at least to the extent that you can control that. And I, 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 what I'm getting at is um, I think those new connections that can be made, while largely it seems are they're sort of natural they just wouldn't have come about otherwise i think perhaps that's also where you can maybe direct which new connections are made and you can 100%. change yeah and and these are not simply in the way that we discuss propaganda right the repetition of messages in the media the subtle you know nuances of a of of, an, of a message um this is this is not that this is not information this is changing the way the brain operates yes. um so I just thought that was very interesting. And when you there's this discussion of was the free love, um, you know, make make love, not war movement uh, in the 60s and 70s. Did that come in response to these, you know, or as a side effect of these uh, government activities? Or was it, in fact, an intentional act of trying to generate such people that could be then turned into acid. You're asking exactly the right question. And and I think that I, I, I believe that I have the correct answer to that one. Um, I believe it. that it is the same answer as what happened during the Bolshevik revolution. During the Bolshevik revolution, you had a certain number of people who were, you know, they were agitated. They were idealistic. They wanted a different system. Um, and then, you know, Wall Street sent over money and hired people to infiltrate this system and then you had two groups of people, but the, the funded people were the, you know, educated controllers. And they are the ones who took over what became, you know, the, the Soviet communist, you know, system. Right. Um, I think that, that the exact same thing happened 
with like uh, you know the anti-war the anti-warmint hippie movement. And in fact, um, the the group that I was in, I'm going to share a screen for a moment. Um, the Association for Research and Enlightenment, which I believe was started as its own organic, you know, sort of group movement. I think was infiltrated by the Department of Defense. Um, you know, every group that you find and you look at, um, you see you know, people from the DOD were involved. Um, but here, this is one where, you know, you can see, sort of see the, the free love, you know, hippie-ish aspect of what was going on here. But here was the, here's what I think was the experiment. And I don't even know how many of the people who are in this lawsuit, I think you know, it, the number has gone up to eight. There are eight women who are part of this lawsuit suing the, the Association for Research Enlightenment because they already ran this camp. And what would go on at this camp was that that the boys and 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 some of the male leader adults, I believe, um, they were taught to rape the girls. The, it, it's worse than that. It's even worse. The, the girls would be um, would be forced to stand face to face with the person who abused them and say, "I forgive you." And what this was was taking advantage of this principle that's taught in the ARE, which is unconditional love right and and this principle would be twisted to use to torment people at their core with their own principle but here's here's a, you know one of the interesting things about this this group with within the area and this includes both of my brothers and other people that I've met that grew up um, in the association for research and enlightenment many of them were brought in you know to this sort of drug mafia that followed you know the grateful dead and the fish around Right. And this was it, it was connected to MK Ultra, you know, that group. Um, they made the LSD in a dormitory at MIT. I've been in the dormitory before. It's been torn down just like maybe like five years ago. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but you, I'm sure you can find it with a quick Google search. Um, but, you know, it was, you know, it, it may have been some of the same people doing some of those experiments, uh, but they were you know, connected and, and we should probably investigate more figuring that out. But I think that, that what they were doing with, with these children in these programs was figuring out how to sift for people who can control and testing methods of control. And I think that, that, you know, the, the horror story for the association for that camp in particular where that lawsuits going on is that, um, that I think that that was an experiment on taking people's core principles and destroying them with it. So um, I, I do think that that mass formation is something that is understood probably in different language by, you know, different intelligence agencies, you know, military groups around the world, and that there is a constant struggle to employ it on populations their own populations in general, because if they don't, they fear that the others will. I think that that's part of the story of the Cold War, is that the Cold War, um, in the Cold War, each side, both the U.S. and the Soviets, did more harm to their own people than to each other's. Yeah. And so I think... Um, just to go back, Avril Haines, you mentioned she so uh, I, I closed the page because I didn't know if we'd come back to it. But not only is she now what, what did you say her title is? She's the director of national intelligence. Yeah, director of national intelligence. That was so, a position created in 2004 after the 9-11 stuff, which is 
awful convenient because there is a exercise that took place shortly before 9-11 that Avril Haines was a part of called Operation Dark Winter, which we don't need to get into, but it, it essentially it had an eerie sense of foresight to a number of events that were about to come. Right. So then for her to be involved with that, the event to occur, and then for her to be made to a new position created for her within the context of the subject matter of both the exercise and the event. And then also now two more things to tie together. She was a participant in everyone's favorite tabletop exercise event 201, which once again seemed to have eerie foresight of the COVID-19 public health crisis. And um, I mean, Oh, and then, and then on the note of event 201, as you were talking about, um, we're talking about this potentially intentional manipulation of how media is put out. And we've also mentioned this overload sense, like there's so much going on. In fact, Tucker Carlson himself yesterday or the day before on his show expressed the same feeling when he was talking about the topic of Donald Trump now being to blame for the vaccine. Point being, in event 201, one of the things they talk about in the context of misinformation and how to combat it is a specific strategy by which these institutions, whoever they are, would flood the news stream with as much stuff as possible. And the intention is to overwhelm the mind so that people have no choice but to turn to the most reputable source. Right. And I think that I think that there are mass formations created during this pandemic on both sides, I personally think that there is likely control being generated on both sides in an attempt to create uh, two different mass formations. And I, I don't know what the purpose of this is, but I feel like I just see it. I, I feel like uh, um, yeah, having, having done the DMED research and seeing people literally hold, hold my findings out of the public. But that would be the ultimate division. Yes. What would be the ultimate division? The two masses, and that's what I see too. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that there is, and, and I don't know what the purpose of it is, but I do believe that there are two divisions to conquer. I, I think I think that a lot of misinformation, disinformation, really is being pushed at and being you know accepted as uptake by our side, right? Like just uh, on on my um, Substack the other day, there were people who were telling me that I was a shill for trying to to explain the exact details of you know false positive rates you know a shill for who <laughs> that, that 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 i was a shill for pharma because I, I i said that it was a myth that they were testing uh a pcr at a different rate for the vaccinated and unvaccinated but how would that make you a shill <clears throat> You know, I, I, I mean, that's just it that, you know, people lose, like if somebody is part of a mass, that's the point at which, you know, they've lost that, 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 that they'll just come at you. Right. Just like I said, the, the, the girl that I, you know, talked to again after having graduated high school and who was just furious with me for explaining the fact that my brother had planned to walk into her circle and prove that he could convince them all that there is a spaceship. He he'd been practicing this for years. He you know he would do things like you know go into a group of kids that he had just met for the first time. Um, he was great at becoming the center of attention for like the first fifteen minutes. I mean he was he was you know good looking, smooth talking, very intelligent, genius IQ, uh, and and he was a musician. 
You know, he was just, you know, he, he would pick up instruments that he never played and intuitively, you know, know how to find the scales and, and just start playing. Um, so he would he would entrance people. He was just phenomenal at it. And he would start with things like he would convince people that a bird just flew right by them. You know, it was a cardinal. You saw that cardinal. And and pretty soon, you know, like, you know, there were two people who would say they saw the cardinal, him and another person. And, you know, pretty soon other people like he would he would keep talking about it. Until people, no until people passed people. the loyalty test, he wouldn't let it go until everyone in the circle said they saw it. And then, you know, like people. Doesn't that mean everyone in the circle has a weak mind? Sorry, I have to ask. Uh, you know, it, it may feel that way to at times to those of us for whom these tricks don't work well. Right. Right. But um, isn't there always going to be at least one person per certain number of people where those tricks won't work on? There are very few. Um, and I think I think that's the reason why the pandemic, I mean, it required many screw ups for this many people to see the glitch in the matrix. Right. I mean, here's the thing. Like, Examples. Uh, you know, even even amongst the, uh, you know, the anti authoritarians right now, it's really five percent long-term dissonance and 95% new dissonance. These 95% new dissonance, this is like the first time they're seeing the glitch in the matrix. You know, they're, they're seeing the fact that, that um, you know, so much of, of government and pharma was just totally dishonest to them the entire time. They're looking back in history and finding little incongruencies. Um, you know, are these weak-minded people? You know, I, it, I think that um, it, it's very difficult for people to know that no, because you know, if, if you eventually realize, like, I don't know. Um, yeah, no, that's a really good point, actually, because then then the eventuality of of the realization, which pretty much seems like it has to be followed by a total like crumbling of foundation, like like your friend. I mean. She, she had to have everything she believed like forcefully yanked out from under her for her to, to, to move past into, you know, the, the truth world or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's like, so. Yeah. And just to be clear, um, I, I wasn't friends with her. Like she was somebody that I met that one time. I oh. think I, I met her a second time in high school. Um, but like, don't even, I don't even think like we really talked, uh, you know, very much. And then I saw her again after graduation. Um, right. What I found out, um, you know, kind of in that moment and then shortly after from a friend of hers was that that experience became her like part of her identity. Right. And so, you know, once you've convinced somebody of something that's totally wacky <clears throat> and they've made it part of their identity to tell people that it happened. Right. Um, that makes it more difficult because now, you know, they, they've taken something and, and built um I don't know, built too much in themselves around it. And I think that this is what school does. I think school does this yeah. in so many different ways, right? It's not just we one degree. And most of them aren't as extremely wacky, obviously. But instead of one story, it's thousands, thousands yeah. of myths, thousands of, of things that you're not supposed to question. Um, and, and it's intermixed, you know, lies and truth intermixed together, right? The most difficult way is a little bit of coding theory uh, for people out there. Um, if if you are trying to get a signal, let's say that you're sending a signal from outer space to the Earth, not all of that data comes in perfectly, 
maybe we have better advanced methods than, you know, from like, you know, 50, 60 years ago. But I grew up with like this little coding theory book um, that I read, you know, um, over the years through childhood until I understood more and more of it. Um, and, you know, you get dirty signals, though, you know, radio waves, satellite beams, you know, whatever. Um, let's say that that 99% of the information comes through. They have methods for fixing this with parity digits and certain, you know, transformations of 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 the the bits that are coming in um the hardest though it takes the most economic um uh, it, it, it's 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 more economically expensive to clean a signal that is closest to 50 percent dirty right i mean if you have a signal that's 80 percent dirty change all the zeros to ones and one to zeros and now you have 80 percent, right so like 50 percent is the worst you can ever really do without mm. just an immediate symmetry to you know to fix things at 50%, there is no method for correction. Everything, every single one and zero that you get, all the information, all the signal is literally absolutely random. And I think that what happens in school, what happens with the writing of history in the textbooks is you end up with, you know, it's not 50-50, you know, maybe it's it's 80-20 or 90-10 or whatever. Um, there's certainly enough truth that it's difficult for people to go, hey, we're just being told a total pack of lies, right? Yeah. And, and where there are the myths, you have enough formation around those myths that it's actually hard to question them. I mean, even just like basic myths that people sometimes, you know, um, you're the buzzkill, you know, when you bring up, I don't know, uh, what's an example of one of the, like, uh, the American history myths? Um, uh, but we didn't land on the moon. <laughs> well, I, and, and that's an interesting debate. Um, and, <laughs> I, I, I have never gone deep on that one, but it was brought up to me earlier today in uh, a meeting with Pandata where, um, you know, uh, there were people talking about it and, you know, one person felt like it was important and one person felt like, like, this is nonsense. We shouldn't even be wasting right. time. I've done a deep dive on this. Um, which is interesting. It's interesting that I've never done a deep dive because I grew up in Alabama and a bunch of the people that like, you know, I was studying with on the Alabama math team. We were, were like, you know, children of, of uh, you know, NASA engineers, right? So, like, I knew a bunch of these people. And there are some really, really interesting stories out of Huntsville that are clearly not part of the public consciousness. Um, here's an interesting fact. This will take a lot of research for a lot of people. Um, but um, Thomas Edison did not invent the light bulb. There was a patent on a light bulb in Canada before he created his first light bulb. And even before that, there was a, a functioning light bulb in Huntsville, Alabama. And I've met the son of the man who was making those light bulbs, but he had no interest in patenting it. He had no interest in, in, um, in you know, um, sharing it around, but um, his son believes that he was murdered by the Edison people. You know, and it's there. interesting that that is one of the easiest, you know, revisionist histories to wrap your brain around. Like that all clicked in my head immediately. I, I knew exactly where this was going. The, and it's 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 when you then apply that same thinking to something like the moon landing, that one's a lot harder. I, I've also not done a deep dive. I think Leo is saying that he has and you should, too. Um, but, uh, the, you know, I lean towards it doesn't matter too much to me right now. But uh, there's been enough little things pointed out to me that given that I haven't done a deep dive, I keep it open. Um, but there's a lot of questions of like what it's not obvious to me what the reasoning would be, although I suppose the argument is it was about 
uh, beating the arms race, at least in, in terms of perception. Yeah. Um, but when you, it was interesting, you mentioned uh, like the way you characterize that interaction of this person bringing it up are, are uh, ostensibly on the same side of a bigger, you know, uh, discussion, you know, same side of the discussion. But to this person, it's tremendously important. To the other person, it's no, 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 let's dismiss that. And it just rung a bell for me because I had the same situation within uh, a group that, of people we know who it was probably a year ago now when the discussions about graphene oxide first came up. And that was at first completely written off by a lot of people as a conspiracy theory entirely. And that it's not something we can even associate with at all because we'll come across as conspiracy theorists. Now, what's interesting is that discussion has evolved into something more substantial, more substantiated, not necessarily proven to be what people were saying, but that to me says we should always be aware of the potential that we don't have the big picture, but we also don't need to come to consensus on everything at this time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, that, that's absolutely true. Um, I will just mention, you know, I guess none of us here have done a deep dive um, on, uh, on um, the moon landing, um, but I, I will say that I do know that there are you know, people in, in, you know, in the NASA circles who themselves don't believe that NASA landed on the moon. Oh boy. That itself is interesting enough to me that it's, that it's, that it, it's an interesting topic. And when I hear people say, Oh, you know, I talked to this person and therefore I know, I think, well, like that sounds to me like what someone would say if they've accepted mass formation or even if it's, even if it winds up being the, if it winds up being the truth, maybe it's the truth, maybe it's not, but they've accepted it for the same reason that it's a general proxy trust that puts them within a network and that allows them to feel comfortable that they have a framework for reality. And this is why I, I personally, you know, going back to, you know, Matthias Desmond's book, what I think this is, is a conversation starter. It is not deep on like science as in here, we've conducted these experiments. Um, it is definitely not that. What it is, is a framework for thinking about the problem for people who may not believe that, you know, sort of mass brainwashing can occur or that or that, you know, that that a whole bunch of people would just like almost randomly seeming come to have the same views at the same time um, and, and in strong enough ways that it can become like a movement that needs to root out opposition to, and, and this is part of the scary thing, is when it needs to root out opposition to its truth, right? Um, and I think that that could form around things that are true or untrue either, right? And, uh, and I think that, that we are experiencing that now. And I worry that the anti-authoritarians, that you know what you might call the anti-vaxxer movement, if you're being very loose with terminology or whatever. Like I always tell people, like you know, I would want to see the evidence for any particular vaccine. Um, I'm skeptical of most all of them now, <laughs> you know, having learned more. But um, you know, there is this this movement opposing uh, traditional medicine right now, and I do worry that there are forces that understand how to get people to believe something and make it very hard to dislodge them from that. 
I believe that my DMED research is a case in point. I think that that I was uh, that my findings were mischaracterized, kept out of view by the people who could have very easily put them in view, very easily, right? Um, and and that this was done in order for there to be mass messaging. And I've seen it many times on Twitter. I've seen it on you know uh, programs that, um, including interviewers who had who had wanted to have me on who had asked me right after I, I started to talk about my findings and then canceled my interviews and ghosted me. Right. And, and, you know, the best explanation, the, the most, the easiest explanation to, to, to think is there is something like an organized interest in blasting out the original message until it. You, becomes you don't think we're just trying to save face? I don't, you know, uh, the, when you have interviews set up and then canceled, it has a different kind of feeling. And when you yeah. communicate with those people and what you get back is, you know, or nothing or nothing. That's but, silence but, is, know, is very telling. Yes. When you get back garble, right. When, when you see people express garble, that's an interesting observation, right? Like, like, you know, people who are, who are scheduling and setting things up are, you know, they try to be clear. They try to communicate clearly, you know, um, well, and I do, I do just want to put I want to steel man that just to say I, I happen to lean towards agreeing with you, Matthew. Um, I, I will say, though, there is the possibility, however slim, that j just understanding the human element here. I know. And in fact, people on our team, so to speak, that, that we know personally who aren't necessarily in the public face have come to places where they've taken on leadership roles, you know, still behind the scenes who have then it would appear uh, undergone such intense personal situations uh, related to the bigger crisis that we're all in that the only option is to shut themselves down. And it's possible that that's happened to enough people that it presents the illusion that there's a coordinated attempt to shut down um, a point of discussion. Now, that's when it becomes, is there a pattern? And I think you're seeing a pattern. So I think that's- I, the I am. And I have a lot of private communications that it would take a long time to explain them. But like, I, I got emails from people, researchers, you know, that, that are generally on our side who said, you know, um, I believe you. I think that that's what happened. You should step away from this. Right. And like, you know, like almost like no explanation, you know, like, you know, when you have people- Dis suddenly disinterested. I mean, we're trying to uncover a lot of complex truths during all of this, right? We're trying to unwind what happened with with the Pfizer trials, for instance. Uh, we're, were trying those to like smoking man warnings, like say again. Were those like smoking man warnings, like you should step away from this molder? It, it depends on like. It, it, here's the thing: I got them from many different sources, right? And each one looks a little bit different. And it's weird to have gotten them from so many places, right? Well, um, yeah, I mean, they're all characterized differently. None of them would, none of them look quite like that. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll tell you offline, you know, I, I can share some of the emails with you. I'd rather not do it because I don't know, I still don't know how to characterize some of these interactions myself, right? But, but people on our side, should be very, very careful if they are if they're brushing a truth under the rug 
for a convenient story, they should be very careful that they're not being led down the paths of a mass formation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jessica, I think you've, you're onto something there too, where it's possible egos have gotten involved. It's possible that it's uh, individuals who have a big public stake in this, um, who, who have signed up on the premise of a specific story and perhaps throw in an element of what I said before, the overwhelming nature of the subject matter and the crisis at hand. And then you wind up with essentially irresponsible behavior. I, I, I imagine we're dealing with the spectrum of these things. Um, totally. But, but that's the point. I think, I think we, as so long as we remain open to being wrong, uh, which I know, Jessica, I think it was you and Peter McCullough who um, did a video called what, what If We're Wrong? Was that you? I hope so. I don't remember. Well, <laughs> I, I think it was, but it's important. I love that. If that hasn't happened, that should happen. I'll track it down because it's good. And I think it was you, but now I'm worried it might have been uh, – someone else anyway um but they basically the the question was between these two people either you or someone else and dr mccullough what if we're wrong and they went through what it was oh i remember saying that once so it might have been me yeah it was yeah, either yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Or, or jennifer from the ccca and now world council for health but i think oh, it was you yeah yeah but i remember saying that well i mean i i was saying it all the time in a string of interviews what if we're wrong? Right, and then and then you answer the question, and 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 I and you uh, and Dr. McCullough really did articulate what it would mean if you're wrong. And I had this thought that I expressed out loud yesterday. Um, if we're wrong, that's the best news I have ever heard. Ever, exactly. And 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 I, I said that out loud in response to Steve Kirsch had sent out his his Substack last night, where he basically he shared a communication he got from a from a colleague who basically told him, "Look, Steve, I uh, looked. There's nothing there. Like yeah, I really that. like pat on the head. I hope you can find a better yeah, way to I spend your you time." I hope you find what you're looking for. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And 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 I thought Steve sort of articulated in in the same vein of what I'm saying, which is. Guys, you don't understand. I'm not gaining anything from this. I am yeah. terrified. This is the worst situation I've ever faced. Not just me, but what I'm seeing. I've like you don't understand how many people I've talked to individually, and not just a handful of people. Like this is happening. And if it's not happening, and there is a better explanation, then you that Please will mean give it to me. yeah, that will mean that the world isn't ending. And that's great news because I live on this world. <laughs> now, I do also just want to say before I forget that um, Leo had said most people aren't worried about what's happening right now because they don't see how it affects them. And I want to address this head on. That's what me happened. Too. To me. I'm glad you repeated it because I loved it. Yeah. And it's true. And so what happened with me, I've been my entire life. I, I live in a, a, a traditionally very liberal um very kind of um there's not a lot of re very rich to be frank uh like not a lot of reason to question the system um we're not getting a lot of dissident messaging it's all sort of hunky-dory and then what happened with covid you wind up for me i wound up in a situation where i did lose everything uh, my my ability to do my job, which is a, a performing musician, was taken away. 
a lot of my friends, you know, being first just separated and then completely abandoning me. So that's gone. My family kind of to to the degree that a lot of people have experienced sort of writing me off. Uh, and the point is, when you have that, when 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 it does affect you and by it, I mean, the, like it's a large, broad crisis we're facing. That's when you start to really ask questions, because if you're not experiencing it, I have a friend who is in the film industry and his job never stopped because of COVID. They kept making I, people need to understand this. Hollywood didn't stop. No. And, and, and the obvious reason why is because, well, everyone's going to need something to do while they're locked down. Um, he 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 he's he didn't seem to think there was anything wrong. And right. I think it's because his life didn't. Uh -oh. practice Did so he get injected? everyone i know got injected except for a well, couple of he people. was one of the lucky people who wasn't affected negatively so he's exactly lucky. and apparently he doesn't have a close family member who also wasn't affected which is lucky because i i think you know the six degrees of separation thing it's like like no, knowing someone who's been injured is like one degree of separation now, if I'm using the, that uh, terminology right. Yep. It's like, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't know. So, I mean, the, I'm, I still see ambulances, like, there's like one outside the door, like every day. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not normal. Like, uh, I mean, even, you know, uh, I just, I can't understand how, unless all the databases are like also part of the mass formation on our side where, yeah. where the, all the data is fake. And, and I am, I'm not kidding right now. I've gotten to a point where I'm freaking doubting everything I'm seeing. And I think I feel very confused about that in a way like, no, not confused. I feel agitated. I feel a little uncomfortable, but you know, what's great about feeling uncomfortable. It precedes change. Yes. And yeah. I think that's a good thing. So it's either like a change in my thinking that's going to be... And you be know to be on guard. And can I share something right yeah. now? Um, and this is going back to the fundamental conversation about conditions for mass formation or how it is that mass formation might be manipulated. One of the things that I wanted to bring to the table to discuss with, with Matthias is, um, is we each have like a knowledge framework. Every time you start learning about something, you know, ideally you build a really strong foundation and then you you decide to learn. I was about to bring up that, that comment by uh, Shlomo Kafka, but uh, I, you know, I wanted to just point out the ways in oh, which, cubes. in the ways in which you know, cubes. Sorry. <laughs> frames, frames themselves come with an illusion and you can change, you know, somebody's knowledge framework just a little, or maybe you don't even need to change it. Maybe you just need to orient them in a way that changes the reality. One of the things that we know about like drawing a simple cube like this is there's multiple ways to see it. You know, I mean, these are identical. Are they identical? You know, which is the front face on each one? You know, I could say, hey, this was the front face on here. Oh. But is it, is it even going to be the same with the other cube? Was that, was that the one that you thought was going to be the front face? What if I said this one's the front face of this one? And suddenly, you know, you see this being, you know, project out front. Now these are not even like identically oriented cubes the way that we thought they were, you know, when they were drawn. Okay, sure, there's symmetry. You take away the color, maybe they are. But, but you know what I mean? You know, you know, one of them could be projecting, you know, tortoise 
down to the left, one tortoise up to the right. It's just an example of the fact that if you are building something, um, it can be manipulated. And and when you... But when, maybe that's a really critical point people, because maybe the distinction between the people who are prey to the mass formation more easily and the ones who aren't, are the distinction is that they're creating their own framework as opposed to having it created for them. Yeah, a lot of people are trying to. Um, even then, you know, what you just said about not knowing which data is necessarily real, right? I think that this is this is really crucial because um, it's just like a lot of optical illusions and a lot of things that we see in the world in reality, um, we're filling in a lot of the information. Right. We, we, get, we get all these signals and then our brain fills in all these pieces. I mean, you know, it's already doing things like turning images upside down and, you know, twisting yeah. them in certain ways in the optics. And, um, but, but even that, uh, it, it, you know, near the beginning of, of Desmet's book, he does talk about the fact that, you know, like in an atom, like it's mostly empty space. Right. But we do perceive all this solidity around us, these solid walls. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that, I think that mass formation can be steered because I just, you know, if I'm able to perceive this possibility, I'm sure that many people are able to perceive this possibility. It's not that complex a topic that most of the illusions that, that we see, you could probably look and find a, a bunch of them online, um, are situations where there's enough information out there to fool your brain. It's just arranged in a way that fools you a little bit. So um, I guess I wanted to, to mention that and tell people, you know, be aware, um, be aware that your knowledge framework is something that if you don't work hard at putting it together yourself, somebody's going to do that for you. And that whether or not we think we're righteous in opposing, you know, big pharma or opposing, you know, uh, government plans to force people to do things, um, that doesn't mean that there aren't people in our sphere manipulating the evidence and, you know, pay very close attention to people's motivations and be discerning with your trust and check as many things as you can. Um, I, I believe, you know, I, I believe pretty strongly that because of my, um, my DMED research that I put myself on an opposite end of people who are probably going to attack me for the rest of the pandemic in little subtle ways that you won't see that are invisible, um, but that uh, that it suggests an organized creation of an illusion. Jessica, do you have any final thoughts to add to that? Perhaps, as we say, a white pill to keep people motivated? I don't know what that means. I don't know what this pill thing is. I'm sorry. I know it That's makes okay. me really <laughs> well, but I, Because I brought it up, I'll explain it for you and the audience. Basically... <laughs> In the Matrix, you've got the red pill. No, and I, I know pill. I know that part, but I can never remember which one means you go down the journey. Is it the red? The, or the, the red, red pill? pill is reality. The blue pill is staying in the Matrix. Oh, and okay. Then, and then people have thrown in like white pill that. and black pill. <laughs> like you know, black pill is the is the stuff that you didn't see that that's really tr horrible and tragic. Um, and oh. white pill, white pill is like hope. That you didn't see like you know the, the oh, okay. silver lining right. on reality so the black um, pill is the is the 
dark abyss and the, the white pill is the light. If you The black pill is finding out that the Jeffrey Epstein story is even more horrific than you were told. Yeah. Um, the white pill is um, finding out that some of the that Pfizer is are... suing, or that Moderna is suing Pfizer, and we're going to get some info through Discovery. That's a white pill. <laughs> that that, that um, the the whole world economy can be better if we reduce some levers of control over like the monetary system. Maybe that maybe that's a good example. That's of too complicated. Pill. People call yeah. that one the orange pill. People started calling that one the orange pill, though. Okay, okay, well, that's how about, how about I deliver some Jessica pills? All right, because I do have some <laughs> final. You are a doctor. We'll tell Jessica, you what color they are. Let's get high on Jess. All right. So Donnie Nice said, my 60-something parents will likely be getting the Omicron booster soon. And, and and I like that, you know, you're telling us something personal about your, I mean, clearly, I think that you're probably upset, uh, upset about that. And believe me, I can relate. Um And so, yeah, I, I just, I want to remind you, because it seems like you are the kind of person that might have done all that you can to educate them and to try and get them not to get additional shots because we don't need them, they don't work, and they could be harmful. So, uh, yeah, that's an X marks the spot for me. Um, and you, you can keep trying, but don't be... I'm not just saying this to you. I'm saying this to everyone, including myself. Don't be too hard on yourself if you don't succeed because you can't succeed all the time, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try. You know what I mean? And uh, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow, right? Because uh, I mean, to, to me, clearly my viewing universe is a little bit skewed, but all I see right now is, evidence of these things not being effective which means they don't work safety aside there's no reason to get them because you're going to get covid anyway it's a fact it probably actually predisposes you to be more susceptible to getting covid from what the data is showing so yeah uh you're welcome um so yeah uh Put your energy, we, we, we really need our energies now because there's a lot of like forces. Um, so keep your energies focused on, on change what you can and forget about what you can't. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I love that. Well, guys, this has been awesome. Um, yeah. Obviously, it is it is disappointing that we didn't get to speak to Matthias today. But I'll tell you, this was, this was a really uh, much more personal and... Um, kind of laid back conversation than we've had on this particular show before. And I think this was well earned. Um, I think we've, we've been doing a lot, uh, you know, trying to keep the mission moving forward, whatever that means. But in the end, it's important to just sit back and just talk among friends. And I think yeah. that includes face that to face. If you can, it's so important to get the bioenergy exchange, yeah. man. Which in this case is hard, given that you're on the other side of the world and Matthew's far down compared to me. But that doesn't mean it won't happen. I got to meet. I have, I have him. <laughs> and we were seeing a little tail throughout. <laughs> yeah. That's so nice.
So thank you, Jessica, for coming on. And yes, it does seem as though we are uh, we're gearing up to rebook Matthias. So no worries there. Um, Jessica, I uh, am recommending everybody, if they haven't yet, go subscribe to Unacceptable Jessica on Substack, which can be found at jessicar.substack.com. The link is in the description, if I'm not mistaken. And um, you can also, of course, go. M Matthias has launched his Substack now, and he's promoting both his I book. I didn't know that. Yeah, I just found it while I was getting ready for the show. He's promoting his book as well as a documentary called Headwind, a documentary about people in the eye of the storm, which feels rather appropriate. Um, so go check that out. That's MatthiasDesmet.substack.com. That's also in the description. And another link I put in there is a link to buy. Matthias's book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. We have put a referral, uh, an affiliate uh, link in there. So if you buy the book through that link, Rounding the Earth will be supported uh, financially just a little bit, which is very nice. Um, so yeah, Jessica, I'm gonna I'm gonna take you out of this stream right here. Thank you so much. And um, hi guys, it was really nice for all the interaction. I love that stuff. And you know what? Stick around until we're we're ending the stream properly, and we'll say bye there. Um, Matthew, um, I'll let I'll let you say the uh, well. What a show this time! <laughs> <laughs> well, it, um, you know, it, it's interesting to have had this discussion. You know, maybe better that we wind up having um, uh, Matthias on another time. I, I feel like uh, I, I didn't know where we were going to start or what we we're going to do, but I felt like um, it was a very productive conversation. Um, and I'll, I'll say this again for anybody who's, who, you know, is thinking about reading this book, whether you buy it or get it from the library or whatever. Um, it, it, it is uh, a relatively easy read. It is not um, a hard science book uh, by any means. Um, there are probably people who, uh, the people who read much faster than me can probably read it in an hour. Um, mm -hmm. Though you may want to sit and spend a little bit more time than that. Um, you may want to take your own notes and, and you know, come up with your own uh, historical examples for some of the things that he talks about. Um, but it, it is a conversation starter, I think, uh, to open up uh, people to thinking about totalitarianism as more than just some word from a history book. Right. Um, it, 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 it kind of sets conditions and a framework. I think some of these conditions are debatable or they or they may happen in different groups or there may be some others that, you know, some other ways to describe things. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, but it is an important conversation because um, if we if we are able to leave the matrix, you know, to the degree that it exists or to, you know, I, I don't think totalitarianism is something that is for me now. I think it's something that has been with us for yeah. a very long time. And, um, you know, it, I think it is destructive and corrosive to uh, human utility and understanding it is one step toward making it better. I, I've got a quote from JJ Cooey from earlier today in a chat that we were in, take responsibility for knowing. Right. So this is a, a book that you could read that is one step toward taking responsibility for knowing how something might work and think about it yourself. Don't assume that he has it all right. You know, question it, um, talk with other people, but uh, examine your reality. And on that note, um, Paula's suggestion, uh, might we follow up with an interview with Dr. Rose and Professor Mark Crispin Miller in the future? I know I'd love that very much, but also or Dr. Peter Bregan. He presents a counter-narrative to Mr. Desmet, um, which is absolutely true. I have read um, uh, at least one part of Dr. Bregan's sort of aggressive rebuttal 
to uh, uh, Professor Desmet's uh, work, and I think that is something to bring up. Uh, I ideally, we'd have them both on the same screen talking, but we'll see what we're able to arrange. That that may be difficult. Um, I I don't know, you know, what level of contention that is, but uh, I'd, yeah. be, I'd be open to having him on. Um, uh, I'd, I'd be curious to know if his critiques are just like, you know, there can be no theory of this, or or if his critiques are more like, uh, you know, maybe we should describe this differently, or yeah. or here are these other conditions or restrictions, or or um, you know, people can or can't control it. I hear you. You know, I, I don't know, but uh, I, I did see that he had, and I have it up on my browser, but didn't didn't uh, really go through his critique. So anyway, um, yeah, and for another I, show. Um, it, well, guys, thank you so much, and thank you to everyone in the chat. You really have been part of this uh, stream, and um, yeah, thank you for being so engaged and being the Rounding the Earth community. It is your Earth that we are attempting to unflatten, and you're helping do that. Um, so the best ways to support the show, become a paid subscriber of the Rounding the Earth newsletter on Substack. You can also... Uh, oh, well, there's where you go to do that. And there's plenty of exclusive uh, content there for prescribed members. And um, this is an example of a live stream for Rumble, where on the right-hand side, if you're watching there, you can leave us a Rumble rant. We had our first two one week ago today, and it was just incredible to see the support that was given there. So thank you so much. And also you can use this handy $5 tip button on Rockfin if you're watching there. These are all great ways to support the show, but in the end, simply watching the show is the best way to support it, and you have all done that today. So thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Liam Sturgis, and you can find me at www.liamsturgis.com or at the Liam Sturgis on Twitter. And we will be back on Friday for our weekly news roundup, where we will be talking about such things as the disbanding of the Ontario COVID-19 science advisory table and other things that will inevitably come up during the week. And back again on Monday for another one-on-one -on -one chat between Matthew and a awesome guest. And then another roundtable on Tuesday. We're getting busy, guys. All right. See you later. Mm -hmm.